did I get the job? Absolutely not. Why not? Because you're a baby boomer and I'm a millennial. Most Gen Xers are in school during the crash. So at first they think like, so what? I am a Gen Xer. But I came to find out that actually the term Generation X, it has no meaning. How is eating meat racist? I'll gladly tell you. Looks like we've got an oppressor on our hands. Millennials and Generation Z have the Peter Pan syndrome. They don't ever want to grow up. Maybe they belong to school, you didn't do anything. While there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else. And yet you're stealing their future in front of their very eyes. You're going to mature and you're going to realize nothing's free, that things aren't equal, and that your utopian society you created in your mind in your youth simply is not sustainable. Okay, Boomer, listen up. Generational conflict is back. Boomers have stolen millennials' future. They've used up scarce resources while voting for austerity. For their part, millennials are self-absorbed avocado scoffers who rather complain than work and save. Where once the young rebels of the 1960s stuck it to the man, and by extension their parents' generation, today it's the turn of the young to challenge that very same 60s generation, now grown old, retired, and complacent. It's they who mortgaged our future, didn't they? This is the growing narrative of generationalism, the belief that all members of a given generation possess characteristics specific to that generation, which make it inferior or superior to another. Our turbulent times at the end of the end of history are generating new cleavages and conflicts, and the generation war is one of the most prominent across the West. Welcome to OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations, a special five-part series by Alfe Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Last time, in part three, we analyzed the baby boomers and saw that whatever utopian dreams the 60s rebels may have had at the time, the boomers' real contribution to history has been generationalism. The conceiving of history and of social conflicts through the lens of generations, each with their distinct character, has a long history, as we learned in part two. But it was the boomers, whose emphasis on the special qualities of youth and on the defunct norms of their elders, who gave generational consciousness the weight it continues to have today. The boomers were such a large and self-conscious generation that they cast a shadow over those who followed. In particular, Generation X, the subject of part four of OK Boonger. Russia made the policy that is capable of putting a stop to the collapse and give new impulse to the continuation of reforms. Freedom is important to all of us. Freedom is the right to say no. Or 
something kind of happily rebellious about that definition. said no, a most emphatic no, to mediocrity, to averageness, to timidity. You said no to the rules of the game, the regulations of the day, you said no to the conventional wisdom, no to the merely adequate, no to the limits and limitations on yourselves and others. a group of happy rebels. This is an refugee, another utopia. And that's absolutely dangerous in politics. People are now paying a heavy price for such approaches. Just look at the price being set paid already. Fellow Americans, we're known around the world as a confident and happy people. While it's good to talk about serious things, it's just as important, and just as American, to have some fun. Now, let's have some fun. Rave Thatcher, Reagan, Gorbachev. These are some of the cliches of the era that define Generation X. Generation X were those who were in their teens and 20s when the Berlin Wall fell, and as a result, they're the quintessential end of history generation. Paradoxically, the defining political experience of this generation was the end of politics. They came of age as the Cold War between West and East, the ideological and geopolitical conflict that had structured global politics for the previous 15 years, melted away. The Boomers and the 1960s signaled an emerging social permissiveness. As the Boomers entered work and institutions, this new liberalism spread across society, becoming gradually less political and increasingly cultural. This is not to say that social liberalism no longer broached opposition. It did, because a new conservatism emerged in reaction to the 60s cultural revolution. Rather, it's that this social liberalism, in the hands now of the young Gen Xers, became reduced to an abstract rejection of authority. The Love Parade for me represents this kind of tiny moment of optimism and the almost potential of absolute freedom that was felt in the post-political of the very early 90s. Marin Tom, a film scholar and a regular Alpha Bunga Bunga guest. It was a really, really famous sort of electronic dance music parade. And it began in 1989 in West Berlin in Germany, which was like a couple of months later, it was just Berlin. And it was held every year in summer until 2003. And it was sort of a club night, but it was registered as a political demonstration with the city council. I want to say that it was not coincidental that the Love Parade happened in Berlin. It was in Berlin that techno music really took off after the wall came down. This kind of movement was embraced by the city itself. It's kind of symbol of this new age in which meaning was meaningless and everything was full of potential. Growing up coincided with this post-political moment. I was 19 in 1995. And this is sort of the age when you perceive the world that everything is possible. At a moment in time, you know, when the zeitgeist was that everything was possible. So I think my youth coincided with the moment in time in this kind of really particular way. So I grew up in, as a child during the Cold War, and in Germany it's quite, I think it was a bit more felt. 
because, you know, I, I remember going on demonstrations with my parents against Ronald Reagan's Pershing rockets. It, it sort of felt as if politics was going towards something and it didn't look good. There was a lot of tension and it felt quite unsustainable. And then in the sort of mid-80s, this kind of perestroika happened. And to, to me, because I was growing up with this, it, it felt like a permanent process. So the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall, that felt just basically like a natural historical development to me. And so the, this development wasn't quite as big a shock to me as it was for my parents, who were completely lost. You know, like, like the left as such was lost. All leftist organizations were dissolved. So my parents were members of the German Communist Party, dissolved. When I was a teenager, I was a member of the Communist Youth, dissolved in 1990. I mean, even the RAF dissolved in 1990. What was also felt that there was kind of a tension gone, as if you removed like a tight belt. And this was a kind of unique feeling that there was absolutely no context anymore. This first moment where you could feel, I think, absolutely and utterly free. Every matter, so from getting East Germany to be like West Germany, to the regulation of public life, that, that was already solved, that problem. You didn't need extra bureaucracy. You would just do what's logical. You would just let history take its course. So you don't need politics, but also, and I think this is really important, you don't need authority. And this is what I want to emphasize with this, this feeling that there was the potential for freedom in this kind of, we don't need any kind of context. And that also means authority, regulation, anybody telling you what to do, it will all solve itself. The love parade itself saw itself outside politics. You know, it, it really resisted any kind of de definition. Nobody knew it wasn't a demonstration, was was registered as a demonstration, but it wasn't. Was it a celebration? Was it a display? Was it just a carnival? It didn't do any of these. You know, it resisted all of these kind of definitions. And even that they called it love parade in English, Radstedt Liebesparade, is kind of important because um, people always think, oh, you, you adopt a foreign language word to make things more clear. But actually, it was adopted to kind of resist meaning. We now know that, however it felt at the time, for many people, the end of the Cold War did not, in fact, represent an opening of new political horizons. Generation X were the children of the boomers, either literally or metaphorically. Thus, the Xers inherited the failures of the boomers. It was the defeat of the boomers' radical hopes that shaped the ensuing world of the 80s and 90s. Culture came to take on an ever larger role. By the time the Berlin Wall fell, the counterculture, that had seemed so vibrant and political in the 60s, was little more than an affectation, a style. After the fall of the USSR, there were no meaningful political options left. There was a shrinking of political space to the center, and the lopping off of radical alternatives. Capitalism triumphed, and many Gen Xers would thoroughly embrace it as a result, even if alt culture strove to demonstrate its distance from the mainstream by declaring, whatever. I was like, what's going on? You know, like, full-on Keanu Reeves, like, I, what's up? Stock market's crashing. Well, that's fine. I'm a creative. Who cares? I listened to some of it. The first couple of songs were pretty good. The fourth song, Rate Me, I was not too happy with that song. I found it kind of offensive. To reach not the point where one no longer says I, but the point where it is no longer of any importance whether one says I. 
we are no longer ourselves. Each will know his own. We have been aided, inspired, multiplied. Un des gestes de la déconstruction consiste à ne pas naturaliser, à faire comme si ce qui n'est pas naturel n'était naturel. In the words of Rich Cohen, an editor at Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair, and a Generation Xer, we'd seen what became of the big projects of the boomers, as that earlier generation had seen what became of all the big social projects. As a result, we could not stand to hear the utopian talk of the boomers, as we cannot stand to hear the utopian talk of the millennials. We know that most people are rotten to the core, but some are good and proceed accordingly. The end of the Cold War meant the fall of dictatorships, East and West, in the space of a few years, dictators and authoritarian systems that had been in power for years, and sometimes decades, fell in rapid succession. In Romania, Nicolae Ceausescu and his wife were executed on public television. I ordered my men to set the machine guns on automatic fire to make sure we wouldn't miss. I fired 29 cartridges in three rounds. The first one hit Nikolai in the knees, and the second in his chest. And the third round hit Elena Ceausescu. In East Germany, the dour hardline leader Eric Honecker was ousted. Und ich habe im Zentralkomitee gesagt, dass ich mir bewusst bin, dass ich eine schwere Aufgabe übernommen habe in einer sehr komplizierten Zeit. Und es drängt mich auch in dieser Minute zu sagen, und es steht viel Arbeit bevor. Arbeit, Arbeit und nochmals Arbeit. In Südafrika, a whites-only referendum granted one person one vote. There was a lively atmosphere at a school in Arcadia where President F.W. de Klerk and his wife Marika brought out their votes. A smiling Mr. de Klerk told the horde of international newsmen that he was optimistic about the result. Uh, is optimistic, Mr. Klerk? I'm optimistic. I think it will be good here. It's wonderful enthusiasm. A last-ditch attempt to save the USSR through a military coup failed. And in a harbinger of what was to come, the U.S. invaded Panama to get rid of their very own ally and anti-communist military dictator, General Manuel Noriega. Noriega declared his military dictatorship to be in a state of war with the United States and publicly threatened the lives of Americans in Panama. That was enough. General Noriega's reckless threats and attacks upon Americans in Panama created an imminent danger. As president, I have no higher obligation 
than to safeguard the lives of American citizens. And that is why I directed our armed forces to protect the lives of American citizens in Panama and to bring General Noriega to justice in the United States. Yet, looking back at that era, it's not especially remembered as a wave of freedom crashing around the world, but rather the beginning of globalized neoliberalism. There is one thing which I, I really find very difficult to find precedent for. Alexei Yurchak, professor of anthropology at Berkeley and author of Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, a study of the last Soviet generation on the dramatic change without revolution that swept through the USSR. And that is the experience of this unexpected collapse. Even during the reforms of Perestroika, which were themselves quite unexpected, when Gorbachev started talking about the reforms, no one quite believed at first that there is some kind of transformation going on because this rhetoric was familiar. And then something started changing really, like on the level of discussions in the media. The whole Soviet history was being critically reassessed, and that was completely unprecedented. And then there was like a whole wave of these new unprecedented discoveries going on from around 1987 until 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. But still, even within that period, there was no expectation that the state will collapse and that there will be a total new liberal void in its place. Personally, I'm not a great historian. So I'm sure people will say, come on, there are presidents like this in history. I find it very difficult, especially in the modern times when we had modern sciences like sociology, anthropology, political theory, political philosophy. In the modern times, this kind of unexpected total tectonic shift, which is very fast and which happens around you and it just leaves you totally like flabbergasted, I cannot really find precedent for. So I think in some ways there's something unique. Of course, every revolution is in some way unique. But I wouldn't call it a revolution because it happened from the reforms of the state itself. It's the state kind of undid itself unwittingly without planning to because it undermined the very foundations, the philosophical foundations on, on which it was standing. And it became unsustainable in the end. It just collapsed. That is something really remarkable. I find it remarkable. And I really don't think it is similar to revolutions in that way, because revolutions happen with a movement. A lot of the masses are involved in the movement from below. There was an element of that in the end, but they were not the instigators of the change. It's like uh, people who wrote about Hungary, for example, Istvan Rev, the famous historian. He said that it's, it was like a revolution which happened without there being a revolution. So people were basically standing and looking around them. This thing was happening and the revolution was presented to them in a way. So uh, they were almost like spectators and then they were caught up in it. Generation X were Margaret Thatcher's and Ronald Reagan's children. They were young when Thatcher and Reagan came to power in the US and the UK. These two countries would become the global heartlands of neoliberalism, seeing enhanced privatization, and more importantly, the annihilation of domestic organized labor movements and the expansion of market organization to new social domains as the market was elevated to being the premier model of social organization and efficiency. By the time this insurrection against the old welfare state consensus had ended, everything looked and felt different. I think Generation X is a really fascinating one. Jenny Bristow, sociologist at Canterbury Christchurch University and the author of a number of books on generations, including Baby Boomers and Generational Conflict, and most recently, The Corona Generation, 
co-written with her teenage daughter. When we're being real about the concept of generation and the labels and where they come from, you know, um, I think the, the fact that it's named after a, a novel by um, Douglas Coupland, who's a Canadian novelist who wrote a very zeitgeisty and really kind of wonderful novel about middle class kids in um, in the States sort of drifting around aimlessly. And this title kind of caught on, right, because it seemed to give expression to that sense of, I mean, at the time, it was, you know, the, the end of history, you know, the the end of the Cold War, the sense of, you know, the, the big arguments of the past had, had gone. There was no politics. There was no kind of real sense of what to fight for or purpose. Um, I think Generation X also caught on because um, it was a time of a demographic dip, you know, in the birth rate. So uh, which is kind of to do with the availability of contraception and abortion from the early 1970s. And so you, ha- you did have this sense of a very small generation um, that was kind of defined by its non-existence almost. That was the, the way in which it was talked about. Now, in Britain, I don't think I ever thought of myself as Generation X. Um, I mean, in Britain, I thought of myself as one of Th- Thatcher's children. And again, this is wh- where you have kind of different cultural experiences. I was born in 1975. The Conservative Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, was elected in 1979. I kind of grew up with Thatcher, who was a very divisive, uh, controversial figure. And in Britain, that sort of, yeah, your experience of Thatcherism really marked out what your experience of the 1980s was, you know, and, and how you viewed things. So I suppose what I'm saying is, well, I never did growing up identify as Generation X itself. Um, And what I think is kind of interesting is how the meaning ascribed to Generation X, I think much more than the baby boomers or the millennials, has been really fluid. It's kind of changed as time has gone on with people wanting to kind of look into this generation and see what see what they want to see. Josh Glenn, a semiotician and author, constructed a novel periodization of generations based on the cultural products of each cohort at highlowbrow.com. Yeah, so I'm born in 67, and we were called Generation X, which I then realized through my research, that term was invented by the generation above me. So people born from 54 to 63 were the ones who started calling themselves Generation X. So Douglas Copeland, right, had the novel Generation X and Billy Idol was in the band Generation X. And there's some other examples of that phrase being bandied around by those people that age. And they were using it as a kind of snarky way to signal, hey, we're not boomers. Even though you, everyone claims we're boomers and no one's ever going to let us not stop being called boomers, we don't feel like boomers. We feel like an unnamed generation, Generation X. And they didn't like the boomers. They thought the, the boomers were, you know, narcissistic and hippie-ish and all these things that the young, you know, people in, in 54, 63 is a very cool generation. The, what I call the OGXers, they gave us hip hop, they gave us punk, they gave us zines, they gave us DIY, an amazing, amazing generation. And so I felt like I should give them back the title of Generation X. So that's why they're the OGXers. My generation I've called the Reconstructionists. And as I think about patterns among interesting creative types from my generation, I feel like we tend to be um, people who brood over cultural fragments. So we get handed this kind of shattered culture. You know, we're not gonna, we're not like gonna be a heroic generation like the boomers. And so we just have all these like bits and pieces of old cartoons that we grew up watching and you know, 
magazines and TV shows and movies. And we like, and you know, music. And what we have been good at is kind of remixing, mixing, you know, playing, playing with that and brooding over these fragments and, and remixing them. So you think of like the Beastie Boys or Beck or DJ Spooky, like how intense they are about sampling. They didn't invent sampling, but they, their use of sampling became this amazing kind of art form of like self-referential, funny, do you get the joke? You see what I'm doing here kind of a thing. I think of like Wes Anderson and his set design, you know what I mean? Just kind of these cobbled together, amazing um, looks of his movies. I think of like Spike Jones or Quentin Tarantino, how in their um, super referentiality, pop cultural referentiality of their of their movies, even like artists like Shepard Fairey or Chip Kidd, how you know it's almost always t- grabbing something from somewhere else and then playing with it and making it your own. But it's not it's not about making your, the original image. You know what I mean? On the other side of the Cold War divide. What did Soviet Gen Xers encounter with the end of Soviet autocracy? The fact that uh, democracy, which came when the borders opened, you could suddenly travel, which you couldn't do before, especially to the West. Alexei Yurchak again. That you could do a lot of things with your life, right? You didn't, you were not really fixed. That that democracy actually came with the market. The realities of the market, especially the unregulated, totally shock therapy market of the 90s, created so much unfreedom for people. I actually went to study in graduate school in the US. So I seized the moment and I was in a different context. But a lot of my friends, when I came back every summer to St. Petersburg, they were basically saying that we couldn't, we cannot travel anywhere anymore. We used to travel to the south on the Black Sea in the summer. We cannot, we cannot afford it anymore. Everything has become so expensive, prohibitively so. And then eventually, some people really did well, some not. For the young Gen Xers, or maybe older millennials, what some people in the US called xenials, even if such a concept doesn't apply to Russia, for this cohort, who were not conscious of the transition around them, how did they come to interpret what had happened? So I think within that milieu, the new generation of 30-somethings now, who are, I think, the first post-Soviet generation, strictly speaking, because they were born in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, right? Just at the time of the collapse. So they didn't really experience life in the Soviet Union as independent young people. For them, I think that experience of the very radical market reality created conditions when they, they started thinking about Soviet Union in a somewhat longing way, but not as a state where they want to return, but as a state which didn't live up to its promises, to its values, which were original socialist values. But maybe those values themselves can be thought of again as meaningful without that state being totalitarian, horrible, and let's abandon it, but not those values. And that is a shift which I see today. And some of this uh, pro-Navalny, anti-Putin uh, demonstrations, which you are aware of, a lot of the slogans, a lot of organization which goes around them, they have that in mind. That suggests that a certain persistence of these ideas, of this, uh, which is not so common in the US, for example, where I live. Because uh, even though there are leftists, that's still high individualism. It's incredible belief in this local or even personal responsibility. It's not quite like this in Russia. So what had Yurchak's generation actually hoped for at the end of the Cold War and at the end of the USSR? What you thought was that freedom will come, but with freedom, that basic social provision, right, which the state 
provided, also disappeared. So what I think my generation dreamt about was socialism with democracy. They thought this is Western life. For them, this was how they imagined. I know the question, another question is how we imagined life in the West. This is, is exactly how it was imagined. It was just the same kind of state on only free, democratic, open, right? So they didn't expect the market to be this extremely problematic thing, which can create this total rift and this super rich oligarchs and super poor masses. They didn't expect that. So that was part of the life in the Soviet Union that you didn't really have to worry about a lot of things. And then within that, you were free or unfree, depending on your activities, to do certain things. And then you will find different areas where maybe the state will not control you as much. To give you an example, this different rock group uh, movements uh, in Leningrad, for example, uh, where I was living, they were kind of living in these gray zones because they were not completely allowed, not completely suppressed. It's not like someone would not allow them to play at all, but they were not allowed to make money playing. They were not allowed to play. In, there were no clubs unless they were state-owned ones. But they could, could create a certain vibrant subculture, and it did emerge in the uh, late 70s to all through the 80s, precisely because they didn't have to care very much about money. They didn't have to care very much about apartments. They didn't have to care about food. All of that was there. Maybe you could have a much better quality of life. And if you didn't care about that, you wanted to just have freedom. You had a lower quality of life, but this was there. You didn't have to uh, really do much for that. So that aspect uh, is gone completely. In the West, Gen X had matured under the leadership of an earlier generation, the 68ers. James Callaghan, the Labour Prime Minister defeated by Margaret Thatcher in 1979, was the last British Prime Minister to have served in World War II. Thus, Thatcher helped to usher the so-called greatest generation out of political office. In the US, Republican President George H.W. Bush, a veteran of the Pacific War, was replaced in 1993 by the Democrat Bill Clinton, a draft dodger who had fled conscription for the Vietnam War by taking up a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford University. Bill and Hillary Clinton in particular were shaped by the civil rights era and the anti-Vietnam War protests during their university days in the 1960s. Their ascendancy inaugurated the global rule of the 68ers, the radicals of that earlier generation. Daniel Cohn-Bendy, the charismatic student leader of 68 in France, once known as Danny the Red, was elected to the European Parliament in 1994. The new era of neoliberal social democracy that emerged from the Clintonite Democrats in the US and Tony Blair's new Labour in the UK signaled the accommodation of earlier defeats, the trimming of the faded ambitions of 1968. At the same time, the claims of the old left to transform society were now pressed back into service, but to the ends of neoliberalism rather than socialism as the new social liberalism provided the modernizing rationale for the global capitalism that would sweep away fusty old traditions. In this new world, culture increasingly looked backwards for inspiration, in what might be called retromania. We're now familiar with endless remakes, the ever faster recycling of fashions of decades past, and the sense that there are no new narratives or stories to tell. Did this cultural pattern actually begin with Generation X? begins in two places. One is with the boomers who won't let their own kind of childhood and, you know, teenage and 20-something experiences ever go away. 
Josh Glenn again. So like all the TV shows I watched when I, when I was a kid were, or movies I watched were about how great it was to grow up in the 50s. You know what I mean? Um, sometimes they were like a little ironic or dark about it or whatever, but it was generally this idea that like it was paradise to be a boomer. So, and we're still kind of constantly reliving the boomers fantasies and we have people like Steven Spielberg and, you know, George Lucas is kind of constantly giving us the same stuff over and over again, boom, these boomers. However, yeah, my generation, I do think kind of tried to creatively remix kind of handed down fragments, which is like the beginning, the thin edge of the wedge of then this problem, this recursive problem that we do have in our culture where you just somehow aren't allowed to, you can't get funded if you want to make something new. Everything has to be a reboot at this point. I think that generation, you know, reconstructionist artists that I'm, that I'm talking about were kind of doing it in a kind of ironic and parodic and what at the time seemed very interesting way. Um, and now it's just become kind of a, a money-making way to you know, never come up with anything new. Of course, the end of history looked different in different places in Russia. You know, um, because that rupture happened uh, on the level of the social organization, right? Alexei Yurchak again. A lot of the expectations which people had in their lives, people who uh, grew up like myself before the collapse. Uh, I was still young, I was in my 20s, but um, already an adult, already past college, already with a career. It felt like an incredible utopian freedom suddenly, because it was like everything, anything went, anything goes, basically it was. Uh, and for some people it was really good, but for others it was, it created this massive uh, poverty in the country because people basically lost all their assets, all their links, all their social infrastructures, jobs, friends, because suddenly it became this hyper liberalism, everyone for themselves, everyone is basically responsible for their life personally, for everything, for children, for school, for everything. I think some of the values of the social state, of the state which provides and cares and is responsible for background existence, uh, these values actually persist in Russia to this day. And a lot of the younger people in their 30s, uh, late 20s, early 30s, who are my friends, I know quite a few in Petersburg, in Moscow, in Novosibirsk, they tend to be, many of them now turning in their politics to the left. In the Middle East, the defining conflict of the late Cold War was the Islamic Revolution in Iran, which submitted religious for secular political transformation. The bloody Iran-Iraq war followed shortly after, the Islamic Revolution signaled the emergence of a new kind of ideological politics, one that was born from the defeat of the politics of earlier generations, namely that of secular modernizing nationalism and leftist revolution. There was a revolution in Iran, as you know, in 1979, and the government that followed was a, was a massive rupture in Iranian history, and the revolution was shortly followed by war, uh, the Iran-Iraq War, which lasted from 1980 to 1988. Arash Azizi, historian of Iran and the Arab world at New York University, describing the Islamic revolution in Iran. There is a, let me just say that there's a beautiful song called uh, the 80s, if you, again, the 60s in the Persian calendar, by Mostan Namju, the sort of great musician of, great musician of my generation in a sense, I, people of my generation listen to him. Um, and it really, it's a beautiful collage that goes through what it means to have lived through the 80s. And he says somewhere that he, 
basically he wrote the song for those who were born in the 1960s. Those who were in the 1960s and they were young in the war years. So what were the characteristics? Well, if you're a young man, of course, there was a chance you could go to war and fight and die. That's one obvious characteristic. But we're talking about the, the, the meaning of it for the broader society. It had a few characteristics. First of all, you had a repressive revolutionary society that had come to be in 1979 and that in the 80s, it was much more repressive and revolutionary, quote-unquote, i.e. directly after its revolutionary growth than it would be in the years to come. For instance, uh, you know, the enforcement of Islamic whaling, hijab, was much more strict in the 80s as it was even a tyrant men. So I've heard the stories that, you know, if you were a man and you wore shirtless and that, you know, they would put your hand in color, right? So they were very much more strict than what would come later. So and if you're from my generation, born in 1988, people always tell you, well, you don't know how good you have it like compared to what we lived through the 80s. The other thing as part of the same thing was the society had very few relations with the outside world. TV, media were very limited. You know, there were a couple of channels on TV. They showed very little except sort of religious ceremonies and then imported animations. So if you're from, if you're from the 60s, if you lived through the 80s, uh, you have this almost nostalgic view now of a sort of a few low quality programs that, that TV would show and that that was your sort of only connection uh, to the outside world or, or your only cultural entertainment. And as you can imagine, there is a nostalgic sort of cult that has grown since about even some of those low sort of quality imported animations. Animations were important because they were the only Western product, Western or Japanese product in which, you know, there was no naked woman, basically. Um, so they could, you know, they could use the animations. So, but what is fascinating is that there continues to be a culture on the 80s, as I said, which explains the song by Mohsen Namju, which I started talking about, that there is a, people go look at it, back at it as this sort of era that was also so different from the 80s around the world, which is associated with many different things. And the last thing I'd say is that the 80s was also a decade in which the Islamists who were leading the government and the Islamists in society really had true ideals. Um, you know, they they had serious egalitarian ideas, they had serious ascetic ideas, even more than egalitarian, i.e., you know, sort of poverty worshipping, if you will. And um, that's in sharp contrast to the capitalist reconstruction that happened in the 90s and, you know, the corruption that would come later. So even if you don't like the government, if, even if you're sort of opposed to the ruling ideology in Iran, you sort of look back at the 80s and you say, well, at least those in power sort of were more sincere then and they were more um, true to their ideals. Of course, the 80s was also when thousands of political prisoners were dead. It was a decade of massive repression. You know, no one denies that. But it is a fact that uh, the kind of capitalist turn that happened in the Islamist regime in the 90s made mockery of its own professed ideals, and that wasn't there yet in the 80s. Despite this later nostalgia, the reality of the 80s in Iran was war. The Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, seeking to profit from the revolutionary upheaval in Iran, seized the opportunity to expand his territory through launching an invasion of Iran, an invasion that would precipitate a bloody and protracted war across the decade. This left a generation scarred by conflict, the so-called burnt generation. Burnt generation is a term that is used um, to describe a generation in Iran who 
basically lost its youth, if you will, that that it had to, um, they had to spend its youth, um, uh, you know, not doing what youth are supposed to do, I guess, uh, you know, to have fun, to advance their careers and all that, but but to spend it in war and, and the problems that we had in the years after the war. And there is an active debate in Iran as to who exactly is in the Burns generation. The term Burns generation refers to those who were affected by this. I think it would make most sense perhaps to include in people who were born in the 1970s, because if you were born in the 1970s, it's, um, you know, you would have been, let's say if you were born in 1970, you would be nine years old at the beginning of the revolution and uh, your um, your childhood basically went through the war. And by the time the war was finished, um, you know, you wanted to enter the labor market and everything, uh, you would have had to put up with the uh, problems um, that Iran had after the war, which was uh, unemployment, basically a large population, right? Which, which created problems in, in, in unemployment and others. But there are different debates, as I said. So, and recently there was a program on, um, on a very major sort of intellectual talk show that's broadcast out of London to Iranians. It's called Pargar, it's on BBC Persian. And there was a debate on what's the bird generation. You can see that um, there's little agreement. Um, and I guess it's not, the most important thing is not the agreement, but it's sort of the meaning of generational politics. So, but I should say that in Iran, it's very, the, it's very common to for people to identify with the decade they were born at, it, uh, so 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, on all sort of socio-cultural, political level, this is used. Um, and I should add that, well, the actual decade that is used is based on the Persian calendar, so it's a bit, uh, it's a bit different. So um, the 60s in the Persian calendar would be from 1981 to 1991, for instance. <laughs> The Islamic Revolution spawned its own version of Islamic neoliberalism in the attempt to recover from the devastation and economic fallout of the Iran-Iraq War, as described by Arash Azizi again on Iranian Gen Xers, and indeed millennials. For many Iranians who had lived through the revolution of 79, whose play with the ideologies they had played with their lives. So if you were if you were someone who had the experience of the revolution of 79, you were severely affected by it. Um, it was very, it's very common um, in my family, but every other family to have people who, who died in the 80s, who were executed by the government, um, and tend, a lot, much larger number, of course, who were at least jailed for a period in the 1980s because of political activities. So as a result of this, well, it depends when you count the millennial, but there does start a period that you have a disillusionment with politics and anti-politics, if you will, which I believe it's a global phenomenon, really. Um, re revulsion to ideology, um, revulsion to politics per se, and a sort of a pragmatic, if you will, neoliberal mentality. So that's in relation, I want to define millennial in two ways uh, here. So that's in relation to 1979, but Iran also went through a very active political struggle for democracy, um, which you can say it started from 1997 when Iranian voted, therefore Mr. President Mohammad Khatami, who was a Democrat and who um, who attempted to expand democracy in Iran and a big period of a struggle started, which you can say it starts in 97 and ends in 2010 after the suppression of the revolutionary movement of 2009. So in this grand period, a lot of people had a lot of, you know, they didn't have 
they were distinguished from the previous period because they would usually see themselves actually as sort of you know, liberal, as as uh, the people who were fighting for democracy, but um, they were uh, you know they were not ideological. This is the sort of thing that they would see themselves as actually, but they were still involved. But funnily enough, even those who were sort of anti-ideological or whatever, they were actually fighting in a big historical battle for democratization in Iran, which was very inspiring. And I, you know, I had, I lived through this as a, as a, as a young boy and teenager. And, uh, you know, it was very inspiring because it was, Iran was a super political society and a very hopeful society that believed change could happen in a short period. Now, that ended, as I said, with, this, with the bloody suppression of the movement in 2009 and 10. So, Again, for those who come of age after that, um, and depends how we define millennial or Generation Z, but I think there's an interesting sort of cyclical almost um, relationship. And for those who came much after that, it was kind of the same process of disillusionment, even less politics now. The idea was all about how you can make money, who you can make money from, how can you survive, how can you get by, and an absolute revulsion at politics in that level. The stalemate of the Iran-Iraq war, which left Iraq battered and heavily in debt to neighboring Arab states, would in turn lay the ground for the forever war of the 21st century. The Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein sought to punish neighboring Kuwait for having left Iraq to bleed throughout the Iran-Iraq war, leading to the Gulf War of 1990-91. With this war, the US would embroil itself in the internal politics of Iraq for the next three decades. At the same time, a former Cold Warrior one Osama bin Laden, offered to use his own private army of anti-communist jihadis to protect the kingdom of Saudi Arabia from the nationalist dictator in Baghdad. The offer was spurned, rejected by his own country and neglected by his former handlers in the CIA. The exiled Saudi princeling Osama would go rogue. Reality would imitate the most unimaginative Hollywood film script, with a rogue CIA asset turning against the agency with terrorist plots that would eventually lead to the war on terror in the early 21st century. By coincidence, this was the age of Hollywood's high-tech turn with the introduction of CGI. Moreover, home video brought the spectacle into the living room. The end of ideological politics was of course most intensely felt in the USSR, the state that collapsed in 1992 and which had been founded on affecting a global political and social transformation to socialism. Felix Kravacek from the Center for East European and International Studies in Berlin describes the experience of the 1990s in the former USSR. The 1990s for Russia were not as, for instance, they were maybe in Eastern Germany, um, kind of a period of general new opportunities and liberation. But the 1990s are today remembered as kind of the era of chaos and economic misery and corruption and IMF bailout and so on. So that experience of the 1990s is of course also transmitted in the families again and leaves its imprints on how people remember the time before the 1990s, the Soviet times, uh, which are associated, especially the Brezhnev era, with a certain stability and continuity. And you know, life was not as complicated as it was today and the stakes were lower and so on. That's, I think, important for Russia. Um, and this maps on to other post-Soviet countries. So in Belarus, for instance, the generational divide between 18 to 24 again, 1830 and 55 plus is significant when you ask about, you know, what's your view on the breakdown of the USSR? Young people are much more positive about that as a moment of opportunity, whereas older people have 
are more likely to express regret. Um, and that has important political implications um, in terms of, you know, what country do you consider being important? In Belarus, the older people still think Russia is a key country, whereas the younger people would mention European countries, for instance. This produced all sorts of paradoxes among the last Soviet generation, in marked contrast to the West. I think you can look at it from different perspectives. Alexei Yurchak again. The first one is on a very personal level, people are indeed experienced, not only because of the collapse, but also because of the final decades uh, of Soviet history. They are experienced and being very resourceful about how they deal with crisis in their own personal life. I don't know, for example, instantly go and buy hot currency and uh, or instantly buy some uh, home appliances the same day and uh, or um, not really trust these kind of banks, but always think about having something abroad. Um, so to this kind of resourcefulness, um, which is part of the experience of the Soviet and satellite state collapses probably is there. And I can see it today as well. People definitely have that know-how, or at least they are very adaptable in this way, right? But on the level of a broader perspective, just this idea that something unexpected somehow educates you to uh, see the world as a philosopher, right? From this big perspective of, a, of the meaning of life, see the world as something that is not completely set in, in its ways, that it's not, you know, again, I, I, I would like them to, to draw a parallel with the US, right? There's a, a profound feeling in the US that this is humanity. This is what a human being is. As Americans often tell me, human nature is the same everywhere. Well, I don't know what that means. It's a totally meaningless statement, but they just believe in this. And somehow they just found this human nature. They understand it. And no matter what, we have Trump, we have this and that, we have we, we are very politically active, but we're all politically active with this the same understanding of that's the trajectory of human history. And I think post-Soviets and uh, Eastern Europeans of the socialist state, they don't have that. They are more skeptical about different systems and uh, that makes them more adaptable as well. Um, they are not so locked into a certain teleology, which is f funny because they lived in the state which was very teleological, was going towards, towards a goal which was written on every facade, our goal is communism. And they didn't really live that reality. They lived within it, being skeptical about it by the end. We're not even thinking very much about it. So they were not actively skeptical. They were just not, it, it was just a background which was not their own personal goal. It was like having a gravitational force. You don't really think of it as something teleological. It's just there. And then you live with it. So for, for Americans, I think for many Western Europeans, it is different. There's a certain understanding that this is, this is democracy, this is liberty. And I think that makes them less maybe prepared for certain radical transformations. For the last Soviet generation, the end of history meant not only a changed ideology at the level of the state, but also had striking and far-reaching consequences for everyday social life. In terms of uh, friendships also, there, were, there was this uh, social networking, which was extremely, extremely elaborate in, in late Soviet years the number of friends and the number of interactions with them constant was it was like a parallel society 
that is also very much severed. So you have many fewer friends now. You don't really have time for them. You have the same kind of institution as here, let's meet next Friday at three, which wasn't part of the socialist experience. It was just totally spontaneous. Someone knocks on your door at 11 p.m., comes in and you socialize. The socializing was part of total, total institution, constant socializing. It just cannot be sustained in the capitalist economy. <laughs> so I'm sorry, it just it just went away. Uh, and it's, of course, not completely gone, but it's another thing which I would highlight as a particular feature of socialist life, which makes it special, right? There's even a word in Russian, общение, which means, общение means common. Общение is like a common interaction, a, a commonality of space-time with other bodies. You know, you basically spend a lot of time with friends and acquaintances without necessarily having a limit when you need to leave. You just hang out all the time. It has a value in, in its own right. Very strange. And I think it's only possible in the kind of socialist state, which is no longer taken seriously, but it still provisions everything. And then you basically uh, carve out that existence within, which is not against the state, which is allowed and actually made possible by the state, by the fact that it gives you all these things which you don't have to worry about. And at the same time, it's not really what the state was expecting. It was expecting these builders of communism, and instead it has this builders of this parallel society. So that was another big uh, feature of socialist life, I think, especially in the last decades. You would call it now, maybe, by looking from the perspective, again, of Western social science, you could call it uh, subcultures. But I don't think that word captures it. It's a capitalist term. It's a term which is good for liberal capitalist society. Subcultures, they presuppose a certain boundedness, a certain cultural set of values and interests which define the membership. And the market segments as well, I think, to some extent. Yeah, exactly. And that's not how what I'm talking about. I mean, there are elements of that, of course, but there's also something about the this open-endedness of membership and its total lack of necessarily one topic. This abshenia, this interaction, this commonality with people when they spend hours together can go in different directions. It doesn't have to be about rock music. It doesn't have to be about collecting stamps. It can be about just being together. Even more ironically, it was the ideals of classical socialism that were invoked by Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev in order to legitimate his attempts at reform in the late 1980s. These ideas in turn laid the ground for the dissolution of the USSR. So it ended up that the retrospective appeal to the democratic legacy of classical Marxism and socialism dissolved the legitimacy of the autocratic USSR and thereby laid the ground for the liberal capitalism that would follow. In some way, uh, by the late perestroika, the discursive transformation undid the foundations of the system. Alexei Yurchak on the period of Soviet reform known as perestroika and glasnost. The ability to ask questions, to discuss them uh, on TV, shifted the consciousness completely. Um, however, the introduction of that whole reform happened from the top, and no one quite, like when Gorbachev opened the glassness, which is uh, openness. Uh, glass means to gloss in English. It's voice. He opened voiceness. He opened a possibility to discuss topics which were not discussable before. And he thought that that's going to make socialism more democratic and more vibrant. But in fact, it undermined the system. Uh, so I think that is the first thing which needs 
to be in place, something from the top, right? In order for the shift like the one I'm describing to happen. Is there then a possibility for a parallel situation today in Russia? There is a parallel in that uh, there is a very open discussion in different parts of the society now in, in, in Russia, now in the Soviet Union in Russia, that this is completely uh, illegitimate kind of a system, right? That it probably will not reform itself. It has to go. It has to transform. It's just ridiculous. On that level, it's similar to the late perestroika years. But as I said, the, uh, the conditions of reform are not really introduced by the state. There's no this benevolent guy like Gorbachev who wants, who talks to you on live TV, which no one ever did before, and says, you know, my dear citizens, we need to inject some democracy. We need to make socialism what it always planned to be. You know, I, I don't hear that. Uh, therefore, I'm very skeptical about this desire to foresee what will happen by drawing the parallel. I think it's going to be very different. But I do see the, that uh, internally the system is already uh, ripe for change. And it's actually going, when it happens, it will be very easy to transform it because people are not necessarily so invested in it anymore. Many people will have things which they don't want to lose, yeah, but... I think socially they're not invested in it. The disintegration of the Eastern Bloc would leave a difficult and dubious inheritance for subsequent generations as to how they related to the past. It also produced nostalgia, not necessarily for the authoritarianism of the old states, but for their stability and economic security. Felix Kravatsek describes the differing generational responses to authoritarianism following this period of rupture. First thing to notice that the Russian experience of authoritarianism is quite an interesting one because it's a left-wing authoritarianism, which is quite rare, right? In the kind of horizon in the universe of cases, um, kind of a progressive authoritarianism, if you want to call it that way. Um, so that leaves a particular legacy also in the way it's remembered um, in Russia. And the second point, just for the question of generational continuity or rupture, is that there is a certain kind of um, maintenance, I guess, of, of practices. By that I mean that movies, films, and movies and films, series, books of the Soviet era about the war are being re-edited or are being watched again. So the, that creates a certain continuity also in terms of the, let's call it mnemonic frames or the kind of historical narratives that are circulating in a society. So this is as context for this question of how much rupture is there between between generations because then of course there is i mean if you look at the kind of the very young ones let's say the 18 to to 24 um views on stalin and the soviet era are much more critical than let's take the other extreme um 55 plus um of course older people have a more benevolent or positive view on on this on this these periods of history um so just to put some numbers on that, 27% um, of people aged 18 to 24 see Stalin with respect, whereas that value is at 40% for people 40 plus, and it's then even higher the older you go. But what is interesting in these time shots is if we look a little bit at the trends, because the approval rates of the nostalgia also of the Soviet Union 
has risen also among young people. It is still lower than for the 55 plus, but over the last five, 20 years, we've seen an increase in views on, well, certain things were better in the Soviet Union and we re regret economic stability, social trust, uh, friendly neighborhood ties, ties with neighboring countries, international solidarity. This kind of discourse comes up. And that is also having an impact on the younger ones, those who have not experienced anything of the Soviet Union, but those to whom it has only been transmitted through family history. I mean, the 18 to 24 year olds, these are the millennials, um, they have no personal experience of, of the Soviet Union. They've only had Putin as their leader. Um, and that kind of touches on this first point about the continuity of telling family stories, of having these narratives in your neighborhood, in your family context, and reading maybe books that your parents read and, and therefore creating a, a mnemonic or a historical continuity. The changing shape of this historical memory was affected in different ways by the emergence of new authoritarian forms of government in the former Soviet bloc in countries such as Russia and Belarus. One strange aspect of this post-political era was nostalgia for the old Eastern bloc, called Ostalgie in Germany, meaning nostalgia for the East. But it was a sentiment that was particularly common and widely felt among Eastern Gen Xers. Felix Kravatsek explains what people say when you ask them about the breakup of the Soviet Union. First thing to notice that the Russian experience of authoritarianism is quite an interesting one because it's a left-wing authoritarianism, which is quite rare, right? In the kind of horizon and the universe of cases, um, kind of a progressive authoritarianism, if you want to call it that way. Um, so that leaves a particular legacy also in the way it's remembered um, in Russia. And the second point, just for the question of generational continuity or rupture, is that there is a certain kind of um, maintenance, I guess, of, of practices. By that I mean that movies, films, and movies and films, series, books of the Soviet era about the war are being re-edited or are being watched again. So the, that creates a certain continuity also in terms of the, let's call it mnemonic frames or the kind of historical narratives that are circulating in a society. It's just as, as context for this question of how much rupture is there between between generations, because then of course there is. I mean, if you look at the kind of the very young ones, let's say the 18 to, to 24, um, views on Stalin and the Soviet era are much more critical than let's take the other extreme um, 55 plus. Um, of course, older people have a more benevolent or positive view on, on, this, on this, these periods of history. Um, so just to put some numbers on that, 27% um, of people aged 18 to 24 see Stalin with respect, whereas that value is at 40% for people 40 plus, and it's then even higher the older you go. But what is interesting in these time shots is if we look a little bit at the trends, because the approval rates of the nostalgia also of the Soviet Union has risen also among young people. It is still lower than for the 55 plus, but over the last five, 20 years, we've seen an increase in views on, well, certain things were better in the Soviet Union and we re regret economic stability, social trust, uh, friendly neighborhood ties, ties with neighboring countries, international solidarity. This kind of discourse comes up. And that is also having an impact on the younger ones, those who have not experienced anything of the Soviet Union, but those to whom it has only been transmitted through family history. I mean, the 18 to 24 year olds, these are the millennials, um, they have no personal experience of, of the Soviet Union. They've only had Putin as their leader. Um, and that kind of touches on this first point about the continuity of 
telling family stories, of having these narratives in your neighborhood, in your family context, and reading maybe books that your parents read, and, and therefore creating a, a mnemonic or a historical continuity. The picture looks very different. Um, in other post-Soviet states. So in Belarus, I've already mentioned that um, the young people generally don't express great regret for the Soviet times. Um, so that we can also see um, 34% as reference point here say the breakup of the Soviet Union was a bad thing. 34% of young Belarusians and two thirds of the older people. Um, and then of course in the post, so in the Baltic states, uh, which were part of the Soviet Union, um, nostalgia for the Soviet Union is the lowest and if you look a little deeper here, um, what we can see is that today there's a huge difference between settlement size. So between young people living in urban areas and those living in not even rural, but kind of less bigger towns. Um, so settlements below, let's say, 250,000 inhabitants, um, there'll be a much more nostalgic view on the breakup on, on the Soviet era and a more negative view on the breakup of the Soviet Union itself in Russia. In Ukraine, there's a kind of interesting comparison that does not explain the difference. It's not about settlement size, the difference in view between the generations, but it's the question of in which part of Ukraine do you live? Do you live in the East? Do you live in the West? Schematically, are you a Russian speaker? Are you a Ukrainian speaker? That's the most um, important factor in explaining your attitudes towards the breakup of the Soviet Union. Maybe just to add to that, of course, the interesting question always is then um, what young people think today, what will it mean what they think once they are 35 and older, right? I mean, it's by no means a given that um, the views of the 18 to 24-year-olds that are so non-nostalgic about the Soviet Union will not have completely changed in 10 years' times. And I think that's where um, it's really important to look at how the Soviet Union is represented, what political and cultural discourse emerges, and how that maybe changes the meanings of the Soviet Union over time, because even those young today might then come up with a very different um, picture of the Soviet Union, maybe we'll find a similar kind of Soviet nostalgic view in 10 years' times amongst those who are today very much opposed to that. How does this compare with the phenomenon of so-called nostalgia in the former East Germany? Yeah, I don't think we can compare it to what we see in parts of Eastern Germany with this, as you say, the hipsterization of a particular past that um, you know East German cucumbers are a thing that also young people really endorse now, or East German chocolate, because that's what their grandparents ate, and it's kind of a cool thing. I'm, I'm not really aware of that going on to the same extent. I mean, there's this kit nostalgia, so that you can buy, I don't know, hats and flags and, and this kind of, kind of cultural artifacts, if you want to call it that way. Um, there's a certain endorsement of this historical reenactment stuff for these theme parks. Um, having your kids play on a tank in a public space and then you take pictures of that. And the children are trying to climb the tank and so on. That is happening, but it doesn't have the same kind of cult status, is my impression, because maybe that links to that question about the ambivalence. I mean, after all, young people, they don't want to return to the restrictions of the Soviet Union. You know, so they're, they're not endorsing not being able to travel. They're not endorsing 
um, not being able to freely choose their workplace um, or having economic opportunities. That is something they certainly like. And so there's also an ambivalence in that nostalgia is that it's, it is very selective. I mean, it harks back to certain ideas of greatness and having been an influential country and having had a, you know, a clear political power structure. These kind of elements are, are the ones that are selected, but, but they are decoupled, I guess, from, from other things. So it's not an all embracing nostalgia of that, of that Soviet period. And I don't see it having an equivalent It's perhaps telling that in this discussion of Generation X, the generation of the end of history, that the world nostalgia has cropped up quite so much. Be it Western cultural retromania as seen in, say, the second summer of love in the late 1980s, or a longing for a certain notion of stability or of ideological commitment in the East. Next time, in the fifth and final part of this series, we'll look at millennials, that generation that bridges the global financial crisis and the end of the end of history. We'll examine the emergence of new generation wars and the myths and self-mythologization of millennials. And we'll conclude by looking at the effects on the next generation, Gen Z, of growing up with global connectedness and the experience of the pandemic. Thank you for listening. This series is produced by Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, and Alex Hochuli. Original music is by Johnny Mundy. This episode's guests have been, in order of appearance, Marin Tom, Alexei Yurchak, Jenny Bristow, Josh Glenn, Arash Azizi, and Felix Kravatsek. And the narrator is myself, Alex Hochul. For access to everything Alfie Bunga Bunga, including bonus content, original subscriber-only episodes, and our monthly reading clubs, join us at patreon.com slash bungacast. OK Bunger, The Problem of Generations, is back with another episode next week. See you then.